I'll call on Michael to do an acknowledgement to country. Thank you, Michael. Uh, tonight's talk is on the ninth precept. Uh, I take up the way of not indulging in anger. Uh, please sit comfortably. is uh, an energy uh, that we can use uh, for good or for ill. Uh, it can be uh, creative or destructive. Uh, the, in terms of the, the, the Zen way, uh, it is not, um, it's not, don't be angry which is Joko Beck's uh, uh, koan. It's, it's a great koan because it immediately, like for all of us, I think, evokes anger straight away. So he used to, she used to say, don't be angry. What? You can't tell me what to do. <laughs> so that's, uh, she used it, used it as, a, as a koan because that is the pure expression of the way. You can't tell me what to do. Just that, just that, like that. Uh, the way that it is dealt with uh, in the Zen path is a little bit more subtle. Uh, so it's uh, like uh, not indulging in anger. And it's very interesting that when people get hold of this, that this is the pure presentation of the way. You can't tell me what to do! immediately start applying it all over the place. But this is not quite the point either. This, because uh, it sounds like it's a licence to do what you, what you like, uh, to say what you feel. And you can do that, but sometimes you may fall out of the spirit of the enterprise in doing that. Um, so, uh, not indulging in anger. Interestingly, the, uh, the ninth precept of taking up the way of not indulging in anger is the only one that deals directly with emotion, the only one of the precepts that is specifically uh, about an emotion. Uh, although it's surely implicit in all of the others. Uh, I take up the way of not killing. Uh, it's not hard to find the emotions in that. I take up the way of not stealing 
with the obvious ones of greed, uh, not misusing sex with the obvious one of desire. More subtle when you get to the matter of words and not speaking falsely and that. But emotions are threaded through all of it. But here it surfaces as the theme itself. Don't indulge in anger. Uh, That is to say, don't cultivate your anger. Uh, Don't give yourself licence. The word indulge is interesting. It suggests cutting ourselves a lot of slack, giving ourselves permission uh, to be angry uh, and even to take it out on others. Indulge also suggests that our anger has become, in a substantial way, our means of getting what we want. Uh, Anger can be used as a form of emotional bullying. But it's a really interesting question. How do you go about getting what you want? It's a great human question, that. Um, Charm, uh, intimidation, uh, persuasion. being silent and hope that it will be delivered up anyway. Uh, Many ways, I'm sure, but interesting question to actually ask yourself. So the spirit here, as it is with all of the precepts, is how do you work skillfully with anger so that you don't harm others uh, or how we don't, so that we don't harm others and ourselves. All the precepts are about minimising the harm that we do to others and ourselves. Uh, the risk of indulgence and anger is that, well, firstly, if you're angry a lot, it hurts. Uh, it also tends to be addictive. It burns into the psyche and can become an habitual mode of behaviour. On the other hand, on occasions it's surely appropriate to be angry. Uh, But it is sad to become an angry person. If we indulge our anger, we can cause lots of pain for other people and lay the foundation for feuds that burn for years. If we suppress our anger, on the other hand, those close to us, and even those not close to us, know that we're angry anyway. And we create unease and uncertainty around us, even a poisoned environment. So what is the middle way of anger? I think it was Socrates, correct me if I'm wrong, who said, it's very difficult to know just how angry to be in circumstances. Uh, that, it's also got some taste of that middle way about it. What's appropriate? Hmm. The Thich Nhat Hanh says, 
Uh, treat your anger with the most, utmost respect and tenderness, for it is no other than yourself. Uh, not just the small self either, but the universe blazing forth. He says, do not suppress it, simply be aware of it. Uh, awareness is like the sun. When it shines on things, they are transformed. When you're aware that you are angry, your anger is transformed. If you destroy anger, you destroy the Buddha, for Buddha and Mara are of the same essence. Mindfully dealing with your anger is like taking the hand of a little brother. It's beautiful and I think very helpful uh, words. Do not suppress it, simply be aware uh, of it. Uh, words like forbearance uh, come to mind and patience come to mind here because it's deeply the business of not responding um, when it's inappropriate to respond when one is very angry but to be able to stay with one's anger uh, without it spilling takes uh, yeah, strength and forbearance uh, to do that. Um, and Zazen uh, surely helps with this. Uh, sitting Zazen, you learn to be present to whatever uh, arises sitting on our cushions, uh, anger arises along with everything else. Um, and over years, uh, we build an ability to be with uh, our anger, for instance. This doesn't mean that we get it right all the time. I think the middle way with anger is it's not just a straight line but it's a territory in which we move. Or like the image of riding a horse and falling off on one side and then falling off on the other. Um, yeah. Sometimes we stay in the saddle and that's great. Sometimes we maybe suppress too much. Uh, other times we uh, let fly. It's good to notice how our anger arises. This is the mindfulness aspect he talks about. Um, you know, the tension in your gut, the tension in your throat, your crown chakra on fire. Uh, the heart, when you're really enraged, that, that feeling, your, your heart is actually vaporising. Uh, and the shock of, the, of anger appearing like that too. Is, is part of the power of it. When we notice our anger and can acknowledge it, uh, it's possible to create a pause. In this pause is everything. You know, uh, the creation of a pause. Uh, my friend Anthony Cormican um, 
my producer for 15 years, he used to say, as a general thing about this, he immediately did nothing. It's a great line. <laughs> immediately doing nothing. And you shift the energy um, when that happens. Where someone expects you to come back, there is nothing at that moment. You might have the luxury then to think about what you're going to say or not to say or, or whatever, but the pause is almost everything. I'm not convinced by the notion that one outburst of anger can destroy lifetimes of practice. Uh, which I remember a student in New Zealand bringing to me uh, in great fear and trepidation. But I find that when I am unreasonably angry and released on others, I can spend months picking up the pieces. Uh, usually my feeling is that, justified or not, my releasing my anger, especially venting it to the full, uh, causes harm. Uh, it feels often, re well, retrospectively, that it, it would have been better to have been skillful uh, in those circumstances. I feel that we all carry uh, a store of anger in us. I suspect that when one angry situation has passed or been resolved, that body of angry feeling accumulated over a lifetime migrates to other circumstances. Circumstances stir us up, but there is a powerful underlay of emotion to be stirred in us. I feel that with patient work, with realisation of no self, and the cultivation of mindfulness that we can begin to empty the storehouse of anger that we all carry. If not reduce it, then at least handle it more skillfully. Anger is entangled with fear and sorrow. Sometimes we fear the loss of control in a situation so we use our anger to control or even intimidate others to keep them at bay. Uh, or we may fear getting angry, um, losing it, and uh, that can become part of the build-up of more anger. Uh, losing it reminds me of that vivid expression, he was completely beside himself with rage. Hmm. Not only being out of control, but in a way almost out of your own body uh, with it. Um, with our anger, uh, we protect the softer and more vulnerable parts of ourselves. Like this, our anger functions to protect our heart and our vulnerability in quite understandable ways. We fear sorrow and loss we fear losing out and the desolation that that brings. And all of this tends to make us defensive and to protect our own 
I'm not saying that it is wrong to be angry, but it is a shame to become an angry person. There is an old saying that the devil's crowning glory is an embittered old person. There's not much of a gap between being embittered uh, and being angry. Embitterment might be thought of as ossified uh, anger and frustration. One of the, the powerful uh, things of the verses the, in the Jukai ceremony are the verses that come to us from Bodhidharma and from Dogen. Um, and one of the beauty about doing Jukai and, uh, and indeed giving talks about uh, the precepts are these verses which are, are so profound, um, which ground the, the ethical issues, uh, the issues that deal with... Um, inappropriate and appropriate, right and wrong, um, the setting of boundaries uh, for ourselves, the setting of boundaries in our relationship. All this is immensely important, but it's also grounded in vastness, uh, the place where there is no coming and going, no self, uh, no other. Um, and is it, they are, in their way, an expression of that too. So Bodhidharma wrote, Self-nature is subtle and mysterious. This is said over and over again in the Jukai ceremony. Self-nature is subtle and mysterious. In the realm of the selfless Dharma, not contriving reality for the self is called the precept of not indulging in anger. What a great phrase, not contriving reality for the self. He's saying that uh, where there is no self, uh, don't contrive the self. And uh, where there is no other, don't contrive the other. Um, Anger plays so powerfully with this dualism. I am furious with you. It couldn't be clearer. Um, it sets uh, it sets people apart. To use that expression, in the selfless dharma, the vast, dimensionless, timeless realm, uh, where there is neither self nor other, um, you shouldn't contrive reality there for yourself either. What is contriving reality for the self? You know, we are all meaning-making creatures. We're always making meaning out of our experience. It's natural. We can't help it. So, in a way, we are always contriving reality one way or another for ourselves. Uh, Even out of the simplest of materials like, uh, what's the weather today? Um, You know, we have a response to that. But we, we are always contriving reality one way or another. We take what's on offer and we use it to create our interpretation of the world. Um, uh, the Buddha said in the Dhammapada, with our thoughts we make the world. Okay. 
It's true. This is the expression of contriving reality. It's also true that with our thoughts we make up the world. Okay? With imagination. We are making it up all the time, one way or another. Uh, it's inevitable. Uh, with our thoughts we create self and other and we set up our lives to serve uh, that dichotomy. One means of contriving reality for the self is to use anger to control, intimidate, shame and humiliate others. I think of households ruled by angry, violent men where the extremes of control, intimidation and violence have even led to women being murdered. There's the tyrant at the head of the table and there's the tyrant at the head of a country, also really ruling by fear, intimidation and murder. Uh, there is that. Uh, this is the, the larger picture. A contrary wise, we turn our anger inwards against ourselves, which in its own way is also a way of contriving reality for ourselves. We feel that we have no right to express our anger, especially if we've grown up in households in which we are punished for it. We grow into adults who feel ashamed to express our anger and who also fear the anger of others. Uh, we also fear our own anger, especially losing control, bursting into tears, saying what we never meant to say, even when it's our truth. So there's an entanglement of fear um, through anger, um, which sometimes makes it hard to deal with skillfully. Um, I think it's one thing to talk about a middle way uh, with anger, but who of us would criticise a woman in the full force of her fury after she has endured a lifetime of abuse from a violent and controlling husband. Uh, you know, it, we're not, we shouldn't feel that it is simple as just holding the hand, uh, to hold the hand of anger is like holding the hand of a little brother. Uh, when people uh, are furious, there is, there is often the hugest justification uh, for that. Uh, it's easy to get neat about these matters and middle ways and things like that, but life unfolds on a much more powerful uh, and uncontained scale uh, than that. So we all have anger. Um, uh, why not use it? How do we use it? Finding uh, over years, um, you know, the difficult situations of being in relationship and marriage, and the the shed in the the backyard, and feeling furious and feeling close to tears, and going to the shed, and then finding after sort of dazedly standing there for a while, finding that it's actually quite creative, poetically, uh, or. You know, tunes come readily uh, on the piano and all of this. So I think that when we're 
in the midst of our anger, a lot of it is very creative and very opening, and it's possible to use those energies. I learned a great lesson from uh, Anthony again, working with him uh, as my producer, because he would make an art form out of anger. And I can't actually replicate how he did it, because he's Irish, but he would turn anything to laughter, you know? Even dire studios can be dire places, uh, especially when you're on the hundredth take and it's five o'clock in the morning and you're absolutely exhausted and you, you're both falling off your chairs. Um, so it's easy to be angry and impatient, but he would turn this into miracles. And to try and give you something, I'm going to quote Oscar Wilde because I can't, he's uh, Irish, so he's going to have to do for Anthony here. Uh, the spirit of this is what's important. Um, the play, uh, The Importance of Being Earnest, opens with um, the young aristocrat Algernon. Uh, you hear him playing the piano. And uh, in the recent film, which I saw of it, um, which is wonderful because he's actually playing scales on the piano, and it's terrible, you know, and the scales modulate up the keyboard and it goes on and on, and it's unbelievably boring and very badly played. Um, so the sound of a piano is heard in the adjoining room, and the butler, whose name is Lane, is arranging afternoon tea on the table. And after the music has ceased, Algernon, the aristocrat, enters. Uh, Algernon says to Lane, did you hear what I was playing, Lane? Uh, Lane said, I didn't think it polite to listen, sir. <laughs> just, that's the kind of spirit. <laughs> I didn't think it's polite to listen, sir. <laughs> so that was very much his, his spirit and his way of dealing. And he would never swear. You know, everyone swears uh, under, the, under the force of anger, but he would turn it into, into some, a, a poem or, you know, a laugh. And uh, I can remember turning up in the studio for, for week after week with, uh, recording an album and I was trying to record a piece called Star-Crossed Lovers which is by Duke Ellington or by Billy Strayhorn. I'm not sure of the authorship of the piece. And uh, the, the brief of the album was not to do jazz. Um, <laughs> Anthony would do the jazz police at the sound of any jazz. You'd hear, da, da, da. Um, but um, I would record this piece. I started with this piece at the beginning of each session. I would record it on the piano. And there would just be silence at the end. He would say nothing. So I would wait. And I think, oh, OK. So we do the next thing. Um, and this went on for weeks until finally he said, that's great. <laughs> there was no jazz in, in it at all by this stage. So I think forbearance is, is the thing here, that ability to carry on with frustration and, um, and to bear with uh, what is happening and to be able to express it uh, with joy and, yeah, love, really. So anger can fuel creativity. Uh, it's also... Anger can be incredibly helpful 
uh, it can be incredibly clarifying. Uh, I think that the clarification of the way, I remember this is always an embarrassing story to tell and I've told it before but I'm going to tell it again because it's brief and it's to the point and it makes the point. I remember when Ekin Roshi came here, um, probably 1985, and he gave a talk at the University of Western Australia uh, on the way. It was a talk about philosophy and science and the way, very interesting. And uh, at the end of the talk, it was my job to, uh, to thank him. And uh, I was kind of not sure of the form, so, so I wasn't sure I should stand or sit. Um, so I sort of half stood, you know, I didn't quite get to my feet. And, was, and uh, he just, uh, he said, uh, he, he shouted, uh, stand up! Uh, uh, just that. Ah, I was on my feet. <laughs> And deeply embarrassed, but um, you know it, it, it was great in the circumstances. Um, it cut off all my uncertainty about whether to stand or sit for a start. Um, so, yeah, it's anger that corrects. It's anger that shapes, sets boundaries. It's really important, and it can be done. I don't know whether he's personally angry or not. I suspect he probably was. Be honest, but it was it, it was beautifully done in the circumstances. Uh, so there's anger which sets boundaries. Uh, don't do that. Beware. And uh, this is too complicated to tell in its fullness here. But anger that's allied with jealousy that protects the boundaries of a relationship. And, uh, you can check it out. <laughs> this is the great stories of. Uh, uh, Hera and Zeus in the Greek thing with, uh, with Zeus having uh, endless affairs and uh, uh, Hera being incredibly angry, jealous and also uh, angry of him and expressing uh, that anger. But there are varieties of anger in relationship which are I think are entirely appropriate and it's just... Um, vapid new age nonsense not to have that uh, in relationship or to feel that anything is okay uh, and that there is something profoundly wrong with jealousy. There's righteous anger, the anger that drives social justice and activism, that gets people protesting and shaping the world for the better. Uh, there's anger at corporations who exploit and destroy uh, the planet. There is anger at political decisions which are so uh, destructive. Um, I've been watching the three-part series on Afghanistan on ABC television. And uh, it's incredibly um, sad and tragic to watch that unfolding drama, which was not the worst of the, the two uh, wars. Um, uh, what screams out and is barely mentioned anywhere is that if the situation was reversed and uh, troops from Afghanistan had come to Australia, dropped bombs on us, killed our children, 
uh, we would be using improvised explosive devices um, and we would kill them with whatever means were at hand uh, and we would drive them out with whatever means were at hand. But the inability to reverse those two situations and to see one is quite normal. Um, uh, this doesn't take away from the heroism of Australian troops and it doesn't take away from the grieving and suffering that they underwent there. But the inability to reverse the situation and see what it would mean if it was run the other way around is profoundly tragic and profoundly blind. Uh, briefly, I'd want to touch um, on something I touched on in the Sasenka talk, and um, it's the, uh, the fourfold task. Uh, I want to be brief here because a number of people here have heard this, but I want to give the briefest sketch. Um, Stephen Batchelor, in his book called The End of Buddhism, uh, says that the Four Noble Truths, um, life is suffering, suffering has a cause, um, there is an end to suffering, uh, and this can be affected through uh, the eight, walking the Eightfold Noble Path. This is the traditional uh, Four Noble Truths as they come down to us. Um, he says that this is an overlay and a corruption of a, an earlier version, which is called the fourfold, he calls the fourfold task. And the fourfold task can be described as followed. Suffering is to be comprehended. This means, in the very, very broad, life is to be taken on that each moment um, is, it's not just a matter of making a judgment that life is suffering, it's a, a matter of meeting what is there, uh, of becoming intimate with it, to give it a Zen uh, spin. It includes not only suffering, but joy, pleasure, and the whole uh, rich dimension, uh, incredibly rich dimensions of our lives. Uh, comprehending suffering takes on the tragic uh, aspect of human life. Uh, we all die. Uh, birth is suffering. Death is suffering. Illness is suffering. Old age is suffering. All of that is still there, but it's an immensely enriched picture um, which is in play. So the earlier version uh, is uh, suffering is to be comprehended. Uh, the arising is to be let go of. This means, in particular, letting go of reactivity. Um, th this replaces the notion that the cause of suffering is craving. It's literally let go of reactivity. Uh, it's vastly simpler uh, and less metaphysical. Uh, then he says, it's hard to put this into modern language, the ceasing is to be beheld. When you let go of reactivity, notice what happens. Uh, notice the grace of those moments when we let go of our reactivity. <coughs> uh, this is deeply continuous with the stuff on anger. Um, the ceasing is to be held. Uh, 
It's one of those great opportunities where you're not being, you're being told to enjoy what is there when you let go of being reactive in situations. He says, uh, that is, well, the Buddha, because he's saying, the Buddha says, that is nirvana. This is very confronting um, for Zen practice because it's not grounded in the experience of no self as it comes through this document. It's to be ground. It's grounded in letting go of reactivity. I think the two are relatable, but that's for another talk. Um, and the path is to be cultivated. So there are four. Uh, he calls it the fourfold task because these are all interrelated with each other. And how do you cultivate the path? That's the eightfold path itself. Complete view, thought, speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. Uh, right view, right thought, right speech, and so on. What is reactivity? Uh, among many other things, it means that in the face of provocation, we get angry and we make judgments, usually harsh. We're often reactive when we are frustrated or feel that we're not being heard. We may also fear losing control and then use anger and aggression as ways of controlling situations. Letting go of reactivity is not following up on our anger, uh, which is not the same thing as suppressing it. It's just not acting on it. There's a distinction. When we allow things to be as they are, when we agree to be present to our suffering, when we agree to feel the fear, anger, sorrow, disappointment, we experience a grace and an openness of heart that the Buddha called, termed nirvana itself. And we are encouraged to experience that grace and openness. Uh, Bachelor says you develop over time an understanding that is open-hearted, clear-headed, compassionate and equanimous. Which sounds really nice indeed. It's very interesting that these four tasks, as they're called, fourfold task, is deeply related to uh, the Bodhisattva's vow that we chant uh, at the end of each night. Um, Bachelor says, we begin to experience the dying down of the three poisons, greed, hatred and ignorance, and we begin the process of abandoning them. Uh, and the Bodhisattvas vow, though the many beings are numberless, I vow to save them. It's deeply related to the comprehending of suffering, uh, the inclusiveness aspect, including others, uh, opening to others, uh, being there uh, for the fullness. Uh, being there in the suffering uh, for others. Uh, the second of the Vows, I vow to 
say, I'm, I'm lost here. Though the many beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Uh, the second of the vows, greed, hatred and ignorance arise endlessly, I vow to abandon them. Dharma gates are countless, I vow to wait to them. Corresponding to uh, noticing what happens when you let go of reactivity. Everything is open. Candlelight uh, is a Dharma gate. Floor is a Dharma gate. Aching legs uh, a Dharma gate. Everything uh, opens. Buddha's way is unsurpassed, I vow to embody it fully. Uh, what is limitless uh, uh, comes and goes in your the five foot six five foot, six foot, six foot six uh, body. Uh, that is yours. Dogen writes this beautiful verse, not advancing, not retreating, not empty, not real. There is an ocean of bright clouds, there is an ocean of solemn clouds. It's like our life with its passions is seen through uh, with the eyes of emptiness. Uh, our life uh, in its uh, tragic, comic uh, dimensions uh, is experienced from the deepest place. Uh, yeah. Not advancing, not retreating. Uh, this is a place of no coming and no going. In other words, emptiness. When you speak and act from that unmoving place, you are authentic and your words and actions enlighten and enliven others. There is an ocean of bright clouds, there is an ocean of solemn clouds. Thank you. <laughs>